Hey, ladies and gentlemen, I'm your host, Brian Kaderna, and you are now listening to the Kaderna Podcast. Today's episode is one of the most fascinating and eye-opening interviews that I've done, and I don't say that lightly. Our guest is Jared Bibler, the author of the new book, Iceland's Secret, the untold story of the world's biggest con. Jared Bibler is a graduate of MIT who began his career as a software engineer. He eventually made his way to Wall Street as a consultant before moving to Iceland to support the Icelandic Pension Fund's foreign investments as a chartered financial analyst or CFA. He resigned from this job at one of Iceland's biggest banks just days before the 2008 financial crisis. He was subsequently hired to head a special investigation team at the Icelandic Markets Regulator. During his role, Jared uncovered just how far financial corruption spread across the globe. Now, if you've listened to my interview a few months ago with Jim Campbell, the famed investigator of the Madoff family, you'll notice there's several parallels here, but this happens to be on a much larger scale and to date really hasn't received nearly the attention you think it would. So what we discuss is how the world's largest institutions can go awry and how such scandals of this can go unchecked all the way to the very end. You might notice my voice sounding a bit raspy during our recording. I do apologize as I was just recovering from strep throat at the time, but I promise it does not take away from an incredible interview. So now joining us from Switzerland, here is Jared Bibler. Is going to require work and time and sweat and toil. If money wasn't an issue, what would I be doing? Don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. Change is the only constant. The Kadena Podcast. So this book, I mean, it, it tells quite a story. I mean, as, as the title allows us, how did you, how did you decide that you wanted to kind of expose all that had happened and unfolded in Iceland? Well, I think that I, I felt almost like a, a compulsion. I had to write this book um, because I didn't feel, at least in the English speaking world, that there was really anything about this story. And I noticed you had Jim Campbell on the, the other week for an excellent interview about the Madoff scandal. This was a scandal at least several times bigger than that and with probably much more devastating consequences for a whole country. And I really wanted to get that unbelievable story of corruption and regulatory failure out for people to be able to read and, and, and learn from. Yeah, definitely. And and it's funny you mentioned the uh, interview I just had with Jim in, in his book Madoff Talks that recently came out. So I feel like that uh, Madoff is so synonymous, of course, with with corruption. Um, it seems like everyone around the world knows that name instantly. It's it's almost like speaking of the devil. But when I got your book and I saw the title, I, even in the world of finance, I was quite unaware of what happened in Iceland. Um, so why do you think this has remained the secret to so many people for over a decade now? I'm I, I don't have a great answer for you. I mean, of course, there was I mean, part of it is that Iceland was kind of swept under the rug or swept aside with all of the stories of 2008. But as you can see in the book, the Iceland story is not really anything about subprime loans or, or anything like this. Um, and had it happened, at, actually, the crisis in Iceland could have could have and almost started in 2006. Had it happened outside of that 2008 period, I think it would have got a lot more attention because it was such a big deal but as it was it got overshadowed by everything else however proportionally what happened in iceland in 2008 was much bigger 
than what happened anywhere else. You would have needed 300 Lehman Brothers collapses in the U.S. to equal what happened to us in Iceland. Uh, so imagine if, if the whole financial system collapsed in three days and also the stock market went to nearly zero on the same period. That's what we experienced. Wow. And, and I mean, I'm not overly familiar with Iceland's economy, but is it a little bit more sheltered? I mean, certainly compared to the United States or another superpower, but uh, is, you know, I assume that that's part of the reason why maybe that news didn't reach such an international scene is, uh, was it much more isolated in the uh, negative outcome? Well, no, yeah, isolated. And it's a small, a very small population place. It's a big island, but it has this very small population. And there's not a lot of international media presence there in general. So if you read an article about Iceland, it was usually written out of Stockholm or, you know, one of the Nordic capitals. Um, mm -hmm. There's not, a, there's not, a, there's just very low uh, exchange of information, I think. Uh, or Iceland tends to emphasize, I mean, it's, it's become a huge tourist destination post-crisis. So Iceland has 10 tourists for every person each year these days, which is kind of, in my wow. mind, ruined, ruined the country a bit. Um, but uh, so it, it's, it's, it's marketed as a tourist place and it's talked about as a tourist place in the popular press. But, but the economic story and the corruption has never really come out. Um, and is that intentionally, is that something that the country would rather just kind of hide and say, let's, let's kind of skip this dark period of history? That's a really good question. You know, I've had, uh, I don't think so. Maybe officially, yes. Um, but I've had such good reception for the book in Iceland the last couple of weeks. The book's been out a couple of weeks, three weeks now. And the, the reception in Iceland has been really supportive and very positive. Um, and many have commented that they didn't understand their own crisis until they read this story. I think it's the first story that puts things in, in a, both a global perspective uh, and, and kind of a historical perspective in, in how it unfolded in Iceland. I mean, this is the story of like three Enrons going bust in in a week you know and enron was a big story I, you probably remember it of course um, yeah yeah so imagine three entities the size of enron going bust in a place with a population of just a, a few hundred thousand people it's a it's an incredible story not just that them going bust but how were they ever allowed to grow to that size 11 times the size of the economy um, wow. you know and, and and be virtually ponzi schemes and I, I do want to get into that because this that's almost unbelievable just to hear. But um, you had mentioned that Iceland right now, a lot of the people are really receptive to your book. I got to ask on the flip side, are there folks that were in the know that, you know, perhaps did not want to hear about this and have given you a gag order of sorts? No gag order, but uh, there's one character in the, not character, but a person in the book She's not even named in the book, but she's she's fairly prominent now in the central bank. Uh, she's she she has some choice quotes for me at the end of the story where she because uh, after a lot of the story of the book is is how I built up the um, regulate sorry the oversight and investigation capacity of the regulator, which didn't really exist before, and I was high, I was kind of hired as one of the only investigators post crisis to look into these three giant uh, giant scams. And we ended up developing a really nice team, uh, uh, great people, 
and great cap capability to you know read emails and and do all the all the hardcore investigative things that we needed to do that team was taken apart in 2011 just just about a year and a half after it was formed and the woman who took it apart told me you know don't be naive jared this stuff is all behind us we're not going to see crime like this anymore we don't need this team anymore something like this um, she's come out now in the press and completely denied having said any of that. So th there's a bit of a stir there um, around that, um, uh, which I think is good because the way that the, the way that the country proceeded, I think we're right. Well, actually, I was just told last week by someone I worked very closely with in the investigations who then moved over and, and became a compliance person in one of the banks. He told me, Jared, we're right back in 2006 or seven here. He said, I, you know, um, kind of nothing has been learned. So I fear for I'm Iceland. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's according to him. I, I, I don't live there anymore, um, but I, I have suspected that from the news I've been seeing that it's, uh, it's back in a bubble again. But the real reason I wrote the book is, Iceland is a small place and probably can be quickly forgotten by most of the world. But I think mm -hmm. the story has real relevance today for, for the U S for the UK, for Switzerland, for the bigger markets. Um, I think that, I think that this is, um, well, the European actually said to understand how the world works, you need to understand Iceland's secret. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I think that's true. Actually. I like that quote. Yeah. It's very fitting. And can you give us a little backstory here of how these these three enormous banks uh, got to the stage that they were at, you know, leading up to 2008, um, pretty much unchecked, it sounds like. And what exactly was it? You mentioned a Ponzi scheme. We talked a little bit about Madoff here in America. What were these banks doing and how did it really collapse come 2008? Okay, that's that's a great, great question. So they started in 98 being partially privatized. There was a few different, uh, I mean, Iceland had at that time, maybe 220 or 250,000 people and had some very kind of stodgy old institutions. One was called the Agriculture Bank or Burderbanki in Icelandic. Uh, There's another bank that was mainly lending to the fisheries and so on. They had some very small um collective fi you know financial institutions and those were partially listed the government still owned big pieces of them but in 98 they were partially listed on this new stock market in Iceland and as it turns out right away they um, began trading in their own shares so they had their own traders using bank money to keep the price of their own shares up and nobody kind of saw any problem with that and that that was the DNA of, of how they grew, actually. There was never a time when, and, and they grew so big that they crowded out every other company on the market. They made up around 90% of the market cap of the, of the market by the time it was over. Wow. They grew so big because um, they were able to basically set their own share price. And on the back of their successful share price performance, they were then able, starting in the early 2000s, on the global debt markets to borrow, to issue bonds. Uh, the biggest early investors were the German banks, and they went in banks, and then all over the world. Even, even a lot of American pension funds lost huge on these. 
there's a footnote in the book. I don't have it in front of me now, but I mean, it, it was a lot of, you know, like the Iowa teachers re retirement system, I think was one. Um, and, and there, yeah, a lot of, a lot of Midwestern, um, funds lost, lost big on this because these, these entities became global and the, in their DNA was that they never let their share price go down. So that became more and more expensive for them, by the way, as the years, uh, as the years went on. And so that by the end, by the time that subprime things started to unfold in the U S in early 2007, 2007, 2008, they had prop desk traders buying, uh, sometimes a hundred percent of the stock market volume for that day. Um, with banks with bank money to keep the price from going down so it was a, it was a massive um a massive deception from the beginning uh which wow. kind of took so, over the country, country's economy i mean every every smart engineering grad from iceland or every, any smart grad legal grad they all went to work for these banks the banks just became everything uh, hmm. but there was there was nothing behind them uh, anyway go ahead sorry no, I just wanted to interject there. So the banks initially, does it sound like they were primarily like the primary holder of their own stock? They were just using their own capital to keep buying up their stock to make it so yeah. enormous or what were the mechanics of that? Yeah. So, I mean, at, at first it didn't, it didn't take much because the market was so sleepy and so small. Mm -hmm. um, if they sensed the price going down, they just bought a few shares and you know, the price stabilized. Uh, I think it's, I think it started like that. It kind of like in Madoff, you know, it starts, uh, maybe starts with, with, with one, uh, one small forgery or one small action. Yeah. And then, and then, uh, but then they, they couldn't, even years later, one of the banks, um, had an outside executive, not from Iceland. And he found out about this. He went to a top uh, legal, a top law firm in London, and explained what the bank was doing. And this this guy writes a really strong this um, London lawyer writes a really strong email. Says, no, 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 you, you have to tell tell the other executives they have to stop this. This is this is illegal. This is a huge reputational risk, and so on. He passes the message on, and the general counsel of the Icelandic bank says, if we stop this behavior. The markets will lose their faith in us, <laughs> which is such a perversion of the idea, right? But, but and and that takes me to actually when you were you were sort of surprised in the Madoff interview with with Jim Campbell, um, how Bernie Madoff rationalized his own behavior. Yeah, um, but that is what I saw all the way through, and 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 continues to this day. So, even though CEOs of these banks were convicted for for the share price manipulation specifically and served some prison time, not much, but some to this day, as far as I know, they, they say, no, 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 this, we had a beautiful bank and it was, it was the collapse of Lehman brothers that brought it down. Oh um, my goodness. You know, so there's no, um, it's a cognitive dissonance there. Yeah. Um, and, and the other connection I, I saw with that interview was, uh, I think one of you said the quote, it was a complete regulatory failure for 40 years. And that was the same in Iceland. I mean, there were many signs that were ignored that, that this was going on and, and there were many chances to stop it. Um, but by the time, and I think here's the difference with Madoff, everyone knows Madoff, but not everyone suffered from it. You know, 
Uh, yeah. But in Iceland, everyone suffered from the collapse of those banks. I mean, th this was a disastrous time. Very close. There was there was civil unrest and very close to a breakdown of the society. Um, was there? And, and just to jump in, before two thousand eight, when things hit the fan, was there another moment in time that was kind of like a tipping point where? Yes. Yes. People said, hey, something's going on here. Let's fix it. And we just blew straight past that stop sign. That's right. In 2006, in March, there was what we what was later called the mini crisis. At the time, it seemed like the only, you know, it wasn't the big one yet. But what happened then was that, and there's some amazing, amazing charts and, and, and visuals about this. Uh, what happened then was that Merrill Lynch and Danske Bank and some other international institutions, also the IMF, uh, within a few months, they all looked closely at the Icelandic banks and Icelandic finance. At this point, those banks had been growing, doubling their balance sheet every year for like three or four years at that point. So they were already growing way out of, uh, and that's the other Ponzi aspect of it is the fast growth. Um, but they had, they had already way outgrown the size of the economy. And that prompted uh, these international analysts, credit analysts uh, to, to come and look and they said, whoa, you know, we don't know what these banks are doing. Um, they're all, there's also a lot of interconnected ownership, cross ownership. Um, and they said, we don't really know how they're making money. We recommend, you know, and, and they're, they're way levered now. We don't know how they're going to roll over this debt. At this point, I think in 2006, they each had like more than a billion dollars of debt coming due in the next few, few months or 12 months that they had to roll over. Um, and so that was the alarm bell. And at that point, the, the Icelandic currency dropped. Well, the market dropped similarly. And that was really the alarm bell. And also the IMF came and said, we don't, you know, we think this is unsustainable and so on. Um, and that was the chance to take stock. But that was just um, kind of cheer-led right through by the by the Icelandic president and politicians. Nobody wanted the party to stop at the, by this point. So at, after that point, the banks continued continued to grow for another two and a half years uh, until, the, until the ultimate collapse, which, I mean, I don't want to exaggerate it or, or, or make too much of it, but especially for a few weeks after they collapsed, life was extremely uncertain. I mean, imagine if you didn't have access to any of the money you have in your bank accounts. You just had what's in your wallet, but the price for what's, what you can get for what cash you have in your wallet is, you know, you don't know what, what it's going to buy tomorrow. And that was kind of yeah. the, that was the way it was, uh, for a f maybe eight really dark weeks, but that whole winter after the collapse was, was quite dark. Yeah. That, I mean, it sounds just terrifying. Like over here, we had the Great Recession. I mean, that actually sounds like a Great Depression that Iceland could have gone through. How did you it said was. about eight weeks? I mean, how did they rebound from that? How did the economy come back? Um, and has it come back to kind of what you would expect? Well, uh, I know that. So, for, on a personal level, uh, we lost our house and a lot of our savings. And that never comes back. When you lose your house, it's not like then later someone hands you a house. Yeah. And a, that happened to a lot of people. Um, anyone who had bought a new car, almost anyone, the cars were all repossessed. Um, and a lot of people lost their houses. 
um, and our pension pension funds never recovered. Um, there was finally I Iceland did go to the IMF, um, and things started to stabilize in the winter of oh eight oh nine a bit. You know enough that we did. And at first, the supermarket shelves were starting to go empty, and there was a real there was actually a run on the banks. There was not almost not enough cash in the country to meet the demand for cash. Um, stuff started to stabilize that winter such that we could kind of scrape by for a few years. But from 09 to uh, 2012-13, it was, was really living close to the bone um, for, for many years. Uh, and a lot of people left Iceland for better opportunities somewhere else in those years. But what, what rebounded the economy was tourism, which I already alluded to. So it kind of was selling off the, the city to the lowest bidder uh, in terms of <laughs> all the all the nice old neighborhoods where we used to live became Airbnb mm -hmm. ghettos. Um, and uh, you go there now and you you can go into shops on the main street of, of Reykjavik and not hear any Icelandic spoken because even the store employees are not Icelandic. Uh, anymore uh, because there's so many tourists there's not enough people to work in all the places that the tourists demand so it's almost like the country yeah. has been outsourced yeah uh, yeah it's been taken over by the globe that's uh that's wild and that's one of the things i wanted to ask about was you hear you know bank runs you know people actually going getting their cash in the bank running out of money just the idea in the 21st century is is almost hard to fathom what prevented yeah, yeah. that? Did it just come close or did, was that the IMF kind of bailed out the banks? I was there <laughs> for that. <laughs> um, I, I went to the bank. It was two weeks after the collapse, something like this. They, you know, they, they enacted an emergency law, which, which split the banks into domestic and foreign pieces right away. And that was what actually enabled them to finally collapse. They had wanted to go bankrupt for months. They didn't have a good way to do that. Finally, the government passed an emergency law at the beginning of October 2008, and the bank split. So that, so you could still go in, and and your accounts were still active, and the government had said, we will back your deposits 100%. Uh, but one time I was, I was in the bank for some other reason, and I noticed that, and it was the middle of the day, I noticed that the place was full, and it was a, it was a suburban branch as well. It was not downtown. And that the the place was full. People were waiting for their chance to go to the tellers, and I noticed that people were just. It was quiet. It was totally quiet, but I just noticed everyone's taking cash from the tellers and walking away. And I called uh, my wife and I said, um, "Hey, I think that I think people are. I think there's a run going on here. It was quiet, but it was happening." And she said, "Yeah, you should take out take it out as much as you can." <laughs> and then I learned later that. Um, the country was very close to running out of cash, physical cash, because up till 2008, it was a cashless society. I never, we never had cash. Everything was, um, you could even pay for like a pack of gum on your debit card. It was super efficient payment system. Everybody used that and people didn't need cash, but suddenly there was a huge demand for cash. And what, what we found out later is that the central bank had luckily, uh, vaults full of old cash they had pulled out of circulation that they were intending to to burn to destroy they hadn't gotten around to it yet so they re-released this old <laughs> old currency 
some of it with oh some goodness. of it tor- torn and so on just to meet the demand uh, for Jeez. papers. Yeah. That's just, that's wild. And it, are you, if you don't mind, which of the three banks did you work for? I worked for Lundsbanki. I actually worked technically for something called Lundsvaki, which was a asset management company owned by the bank. And so we ran investment funds. Uh, the first part of the book is about this was kind of some uh, some stories from the bubble years where we were running investment funds and all these exotic uh, products. I was running a fund of hedge funds uh, as well as a real estate fund and private equity funds. In, and so, in your role, were you privy to kind of what was going on or were you like next door to it or how did you? That, that's a good way to say next door to it. I I saw a lot that made me lose sleep and I ultimately, I'm happy to say that I ultimately resigned from that and just because I didn't like what, what we were doing with clients' money. Um, but the big fraud about buying the shares um, on the market every day, I had no idea. I had no idea that was going on. Um, hmm. uh, I, I, I knew that the banks, uh, actually, I felt uneasy. I knew that the, the share performance didn't seem to make any sense because already in early 2007, in the asset management world, people were talking about uh, subprime in the U.S. and and we, we were really following that closely already, and and banks around the world were having trouble already in 2007. Uh, definitely, their share price prices were were suffering, but in Iceland, the the share prices in 07 were still going up, which I just I couldn't get my head around at the time. Yeah. Um, but I had my own worries with with my own funds. I mean, we were doing terrible stuff with uh, investor money, which kept me up. Um, and I had, but I had no, so I thought I was seeing a scam and I resigned over it ultimately, but I had no idea that like the big, the, the, the real scam was a thousand times bigger than what was bothering me every night. That was small potatoes, um, wow. next to the, the whole, the whole, imagine the whole stock market of a country just being created out of thin air. Uh, it's all the, all the valuations. Yeah. It's, yeah it, it's just surreal. Yeah. And where did this culture of of scamming kind of begin? Like, is this something that was going on before these big three banks? Or, I mean, how did it just get so far? It's just like with Madoff, it's almost like hard to even wrap your head around it. Well, but I think another reason I wrote the book is I think Madoff and this story, these are much closer to the norm of how the world works than the exception. You know, I mean, Madoff only came out and it takes a big, it takes a big crash like we had in 08 to, to pull these stories out, to let us see how things were really going. Like your guest said, Madoff, otherwise he'd still be going today and the fund would be worth 240 billion. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's probably true with the Icelandic banks as well. Um, they'd probably have continued. Um, as long as you have easy money, low interest rates and easy to borrow and easy to easy to easy to lever up balance sheets. That's when I think this stuff happens. Um, and it can go for a long time. And the reason it goes for a long time is that the insiders, whoever's running these companies, they benefit tremendously. Um, so their incentive is always to keep the party going because they're getting huge salaries, they're getting private jets, they're getting, you know, their life's dreams, basically. Um, and on the other side, there's no incentive. Uh, you know, he, he talked about Madoff, he talks about the SEC's failures. 
Um, there's SEC comes in my book as well. I mean, I take, I take to the SEC, uh, the case of the Icelandic banks that, you know, that raised billions in debt from U.S. investors on the back of these, these um, fraudulent share prices. I thought the SEC would love this. Uh, and they just, I mean, they listened to me politely for a half hour or so. Uh, I had a conference call with maybe, I don't know, it's probably six lawyers in the room. And they thanked me very politely and they said, you know, don't call us, we'll call you. And that was it. Um, but also in Iceland, Iceland, the regulatory failures were, were incredible. And, and I think in, in all cases, it's because of uh, in almost all markets in the world, the incentive to be a really hard nosed and aggressive regulator Actually, if you try that in any regulator, you're going to get fired. You're going to get walked to the door within a, you know, probably a year uh, because the culture is not set up for that. Nobody's getting a bonus based on how big of a criminal case they bring in. Um, and and really, the the pay structure of most regulators, most regulators, the trade-off is if you leave Wall Street uh, or if you live the city of London and you work for the regulator, you're going to have much fewer hours at work you're going to have better work-life balance and you're going to take home maybe half of what you would take home in a bank so that's the trade-off uh, but a lot of people in the regulator they uh they maybe want to work in a bank so they they're not going to go too hard after some something that they're uh that they want to where they want to benefit and they want a job in the future so so all the incentives are misaligned that's true to, to yeah. take something down and so i think that's why I really think the Iceland story is kind of the story. Um, because so, it, it has to be happening everywhere. Yeah, I know. There's there's just so many questions off of that. And if I could kind of chip away at them. You mentioned that having a low interest rate environment, easy access to money can kind of lend itself to some of this aggressive, uh, you know, unscrupulous behavior. Is that what you see as some of the fear right now where interest rates are at rock bottom and been staying there? Yes, exactly. Yeah, I think we're headed. I think 2008 was like the like the little tremor before the big one. Um, and really, we didn't we had the chance in 08 to, you know, to, what if 2008 was like the first world war, you know, and, and then people called that the, after the first world war, they called that the great war and they said it would never happen. Now we call mm -hmm. it the the global financial crisis, like there's only going to be one, you know, the global yeah. financial. Um, that's what I really worry about is that um, that was the kind of the, the tremor to, to warn us, hey, you need to do, you need to really look at how your system is structured. And we did, we, we, we tweaked around at the edges a bit uh, with, you know, like the Volcker rule within the Dodd-Frank Act. That was an interesting, that was a good idea, I think. Um, but the implementation of that took years and now the Fed, even I think last year, the Fed is chipping away at it more. Um, so I don't think we really, not in Iceland, certainly, and, and probably nowhere else did we really make the changes that we needed um, to, to, to prevent a repeat of 08. So is there anything specific you could point to that does give you uh, a pause right now that, that you are very concerned about, like anything specific and concrete? Or is it just a general feeling? I guess it's the same general feeling I had in 2007 when the Icelandic bank shares are going up, but we have all this bad news from abroad about financial shares and it, it, it doesn't make sense. Um, I have that same feeling now. 
but I, but look, I've had it for a few years. And by the way, I hope I'm wrong. <laughs> I would be happy to be wrong. Sure. Uh, uh, because I one time living through that collapse is enough, you know, for a life. Um, I, I think, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, here in, I live in Switzerland now. Here in okay. Switzerland, there, there's been a lot of, um, I don't know if you probably, you probably haven't been following the Credit Suisse scandals, but there's just been one after another with, Credit Suisse, which is our second biggest bank. So here on the ground, there's certainly enough daily news to be concerned uh, that one of our biggest institutions is, um, they call it, uh, there was a news headline last week. It was like a moral rot, they said. Like the institution was morally rotten. Um, they, uh, you know, they were involved in Greensill, in Archegos, and now okay. there's, uh, I think it's, I think the newest story is about they lent money to the government of, I think it was Mozambique to buy tuna, f a fleet of tuna fishing boats. And the money that the government people who, from Mozambique who wanted this money, they said, oh, but don't send it to us at the government. Send it through this, <laughs> send it through this middleman in the UAE or, or some offshore guy who was just paying this money out as, bri as, as cash to them. And Credit Suisse went along and did this deal. And it's like, how did this pa possibly pass, uh, pass buster? Yeah. Um, and so that's the, the, the uneasy feeling is, is when I, and I've also been involved since as a regulator, uh, the uneasy feeling is that when I go in and look at, um, some of these investigation uh, cases, when you see stuff like I just described to you and you realize like that's not a one off of a couple of bad apples in the in the bank, but um, the, the bank was was basically structured to do things like this. Uh, that's what gives me pause. I, I think I think the Iceland story is really instructive. Well, it, it changed my worldview. I used to be super um, kind of almost libertarian pro markets guy and so on. But when I realized that a whole bank's uh they were buying they were buying their own shares for so long um that every department in the bank eventually became involved and it became not only something that they did on the side but it became their whole business because they were end up accumulating two three hundred million dollars worth of shares in just one financial quarter and they, by the end of the quarter they had to get those off their books so uh, a big part of the investigation mystery for me was where did the shares go, um, and uh, where they where I finally figured out they went was that another desk at the bank, the brokers would buy all the shares in like one trade, or two trades, and then huh. the shares would disappear from the bank's books the same day. And it, it took me a few months to piece this together, but the places that it, it disappeared and here here we tie into the the um another thing that get, makes me super uneasy is the the global system of offshore finance so the shares in the biggest icelandic bank would disappear to these companies registered in the british virgin islands um, and these were companies that you and i have never heard of with funny names um, and one of these companies could buy in one trade could buy 200 million bucks worth of bank shares and then it turned out that that company had just been formed the week before and nobody knew who the owners were and that the, um, 
the 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 capital all the money for the deal came from the bank itself from the bank's own loan book so in this way the the not only not only was the trading side of the bank involved in this deception but actually the credit desk the core of the bank what the bank is supposed to be doing is making is making good you know commercial loans and a lot of the of the bank's loan activities were to covering up its own um its own share hiding uh activities so this wow. and, and that that just cor it corrupted the whole system and it was like that for years it it perpetuated and got better they got better and better at hiding these things uh, as the years went on um, it's just it's insane i mean I, I think of myself as a financial advisor and how much with all the securities regulation and compliance that i'm subject to just dealing with the average joe's retirement plan and we have that rule know your customer you know you always right. have to know who your customer is there's a lot of background to go into that yet it sounds like this trading desk could go work with a fund in the british virgin islands and take a 200 million dollar trade and we don't even know who's on the other side of that trade really and and it sounds like they're the ones financing that well but the Provide. brokerage the brokerage desk had just set up that company themselves see like it's even worse this isn't some uh, anonymous fund. They had gone to the BVI they, or they had gone to a lawyer in Luxembourg and said, we need a new Shelco. And he would say, yeah, sure. Yeah, I got these three ready for you. And they'd set one up. And then um, and then the, in, in some cases, the brokers themselves, in other cases, the compliance person himself. Uh, so there's a famous email where a compliance person in one of the Icelandic banks says to the brokers, look, we have too many shares and the end of the quarter is, is in two days. So we need to get these off our books. He says, why don't you take these hundred million and set up a, another offshore entity or, or get them over to this entity? And meanwhile, I, the head of compliance, will, will, do, will do the same with this other offshore entity, something like that. And so <laughs> even the head of compliance, compliance is a word I hate, by the way, because it, yeah. it shows you that they're just they're just doing the minimum it's like right in the words definition is that they're complying it's not like the anti-fraud department or something it's the going along with the rules department so that he's just like well if, if 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 i can hide these shares offshore i did my job because i, I complied with the rules and so that's wow. the, so, the, cult the culture is about meeting the letter of the rule but not anything about the spirit of it yeah jeez and so it, it, that's what I was going to kind of ask is it was there somebody on the other side who could also be punished in this whole the scam but it sounds like so much of it was internal just kind of moving from one pocket yeah. to another yeah, yeah because th then the CEO of the bank would go to the credit desk and he'd say you need to um, make this loan for 200 million to this company that you've never heard of you know um, and, and sometimes uh, rarely employees would push back and, and do their job and say, hey, uh, this isn't right. Or, but that was very rare. Usually it's, um, it's a culture of going along and, and uh, so employees would say, oh yeah, sure. Yeah, we'll settle. We'll get the paperwork ready. Um, yeah. If you look at the large exposures for Kuipthing, which was the biggest of the Icelandic banks, they were leaked. Uh, there was a large exposure report. So these are the biggest loans the bank made in 08. If you flip through that report, which is on WikiLeaks, so I think it's still out there. Um, you'll see that they're all capitalized by the bank's own shares, all the biggest deals. So effectively, the bank's job became <laughs> buying up and hiding its own shares. I mean, it's it's almost unbelievable, but that's... That's nuts. That's what it Just was. Just nuts.
And now did the, do you think in your opinion that the punishment or the aftermath of this went far enough to prevent a repeat or was it just kind of, let's clean this up as fast as we can clean up the, the spill on aisle five and just move forward. I think it was that, uh, the, the, the latter, although I'm proud to say, you know, we did some great investigations. These are the largest cases of share price manipulation in the world that have ever been prosecuted. Uh, the cases, depending on how you measure them, they're in the billions of dollars, each of the three banks for each of these manipulation cases. Um, and you know, so, so, so that's something that we did in tiny, tiny Iceland that nobody in like the UK or the U S did. So that's pretty nice. Um, but the pressure on me to wind down the investigations started right away. It started even when I was in the first, the first uh, big bank, and I I didn't even have a team. It was just me uh, looking at the uh, at these trades. Later I had a team, but at first it was just me looking at the trades. There's pressure to to shut the case down to and to send it off quicker. Um, and that continued, and finally, even the teams were disassembled al already in 2011, so 10 years ago. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it, it was kind of yeah, nothing more. Like you say, nothing more to see here. Um, let's get let's as as Barack Obama, I think he famously said, right? Let's look to the future. That was his reason for not prosecuting anybody in, involved in 2008. Um, I think those are terrible words, actually, when it's in that context. It's great to look to the future. But if you've if you've had like a murder or something, you don't you know, <laughs> you yeah, don't just you don't just look to the future, um, wow. and I and so this was kind of a in Iceland anyway. This was kind of a, I mean, people did die from this. Uh, we had to cut hospitals, and um, you know, there was real world terrible consequences from from the activities of these of these few people when the banks collapsed, and so I think it it. it it was worthy of a big investigation and it, and we should have uh we should have investigated more because we only maybe got to five percent of the cases total and how speaking to the investigation how did you get that call like why did they say hey let's go grab jared he's the man for the job well that's uh it was kind of a kind of a, a nice coincidence i mean i um i had quit like i said i quit lundsbunky at the beginning of uh, October of 08. And then the next week, all the three banks collapsed. It was, so actually I quit. My last day was a Friday and my bank collapsed on the next Tuesday. And by the next Thursday, they were all collapsed. Um, and so then I, and I had been thinking, oh, it'll be easy. I had a lot of pension fund clients in Iceland. I thought it'll be easy to go uh, work for a pension fund. Um, and, uh, uh, then there were there was no jobs for that first six months. I was unemployed, and that was a, that was the dark winter that I mentioned. Yeah. And then I applied right away because I heard that the regulator might need new people to look into things after the crisis. So I applied right away, and then months later, it was probably in March of '09, they wrote me and they said, you know, um, would you like to be considered to be an investigator? And I was like, yeah, of course. I mean, I needed a job and and it sounded like a good job. And it was a good job. And they said, yeah, we're thinking of hiring one person to investigate the crisis. <laughs> Who's they? Is we, this the, the government? For... Yeah, this was the government regulator. This would be like the SEC of Iceland. Okay. 
and they said, uh, "Yeah, we're we're hiring. Uh, we're thinking of hiring one person because we need we need a person to look at the crisis." <laughs> it's like <laughs> okay, so I guess they had like two hundred applicants for this, and they ended up hiring me and one other one other guy. And I think in my case, uh, I speak Icelandic. I mean, I learned there, uh, so I can do all the I can read all the emails and so on, but. Um, but I was an outsider. I mean, I had only lived there since 2004. So I'd only lived there a few years and I wasn't connected to anybody. And that's a problem in a small, small society. Uh, you know, when there's, when there's too many personal connections. So I didn't even know the names of the executives of the biggest Icelandic bank, the one that we started investigating. So, uh, but, but to most Icelanders, these were, these were by then household names. Um, and so I think that was probably why they hired me as, as, and, and I had a great, you know, I had a great experience from wall street and, uh, and also from, from the, uh, asset management side, which, you know, typically people working in regulators, they went, they went to, uh, they went to law school, um, and they never, maybe never worked, uh, on a trading desk. And so I think I had the experience to really kind of see through, uh, to 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 yeah to do these big cases yeah and was there ultimately like a a culprit in this or was it just like a toxic culture that hey all these banks are rotten we got to hit the reset button or were there like a, a mastermind behind so much that happened in terms of the share price manipulation um that was pretty well tracked by the biggest bank by the ceo and the chairman of the board of that bank um, so in that ca in that case, they were the definitely the masterminds, um, and we had emails to to show that they were following this very closely. In fact, the one of the prop not even the head of the prop desk, but one of the prop traders was kind of earmarked. Uh, he was the guy to buy their own shares on the domestic market, and that's what he focused on every day. And at the end of every day, he would send the top two guys in the bank. So we're talking like four levels above him or five levels above him. Um, he would send these two guys the the day's trading results and say, look, I bought this many shares today. The price is up half a percent. Um, it, it cost me this much, you know, and so on like this. So he gave them a daily. So they were looking at this every day because this was their lifeline. They knew that if sure the, the bank actually, uh, I have a quote which I found too late to get into the book, but uh, the same executive who I mentioned who had contacted a lawyer in London to find a legal opinion on the share manipulation, he he said later uh, that that bank was insolvent in 2005. Um, the only way to, and this is again the Ponzi element, the only way these banks um, kept going is by, by doubling their balance sheet quickly. So they would have all these bad loans and they'd be seriously in trouble. But if they could, um, if they could borrow more, and this is where the easy money piece comes in, as long as you can keep borrowing more and growing, you can grow your way out of uh, trouble as long as you have access to that, to that new money. So as long as you can double yeah. and then, and then the hope is that the next year you make good loans, but they didn't, you know, that because, because mm -hmm. also the easy money culture means you don't, you're not careful with, uh, with the loans that you make. Right. So, it's, um, and and so um, yeah, yeah they, uh, I can't remember where I was going with this, but they they were they were able to um, 
to to keep growing. Oh yeah, and and yeah. and that still comes back again. That that's why the share price was so key, because the shares were never allowed to tell the story of a a bank uh, in trouble. Because yeah. if, if the like in the case of Lehman, <laughs> if you look at the Lehman chart, um, it was dropping for two years or so, pretty steadily over the last two years of Lehman's life. The shares are going down. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then on the last day, it's down maybe most of the way. And then it just has a little ways to go to, to, to collapse. Yeah. So in that case, the market kind of told the story, right? But in, in Iceland, the, the shares during the Lehman period of those two years, the shares in Iceland, the banks continued to go up for the first part of that. Finally, in 08, they start to come down a bit. But on the last day, it's like they drive off a cliff because... The yeah. day before they went bust, they still had as much value as they'd had uh, in 2007 wow. or six. Yeah. And so because they didn't let the market signal, because they had completely mm -hmm. corrupted the market, nobody could see that they were in. And that's what made the, the crash so dire. Because yeah. if we had had these shares going down for two years, people would have been talking about it, reacting to it. Maybe there would have even been a bidder uh, or maybe there was some interest in these banks at lower uh, share prices, but we will never know because they never let that happen. Yeah, it's like the writing on the wall was kind of hidden. It yes, was not exactly. there to yeah, be seen. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so you said it it really went all the way to the top. So these CEOs, I mean, were how were they punished? What was they time were all, in jail, fines? Like what what happened to them? They were all charged um, for the share price manipulation. They had also it the prosecutor who was new at his job, but he did a pretty good job, I think, pretty great job. Um, he didn't, the, these share price manipulation uh, cases were so big. In both the first and second bank, he took, a, actually all three banks, he took smaller cases all the way through first um, uh, as like test cases. So there were smaller pieces of this involving um, one share sale that was suspicious. So for example, the biggest bank, um, thing, they enlisted uh, someone from the Qatari royal family to buy 5% in the bank in 2008. And they announced, this was after Lehman. Um, so Lehman collapsed, I think the 15th. And then a couple of days later, they announced that, um, that this uh, Sheikh Altani was buying 5% in their bank. But um, the, the, he didn't actually, the Sheikh didn't bring in any money. In fact, he was paid, I think, $50 million to um, to have his name on the deal. So he was paid, so he got his money. And the bank, again, with loans, they, they created a, a shell company in the BVI and they loaned it the amount of money that it needed to buy 5% of the bank and then they took the shares that the prop desk had been buying up and they put it in that company. So that case went separately from the from the big market manipulation case as a test. And in that case, the, um, the executive chairman, the CEO and two other men were found guilty and they were sentenced to four to five years each around that, I think, maybe th between three and five. I think it was between three and five and a half, um, something like that. And then the big case came. So. Um, they, but it, it, it's funny because when the big cases came, uh, the judges often said, well, these guys are already in, 
I've already been sentenced five years, so we're not going to give them any more. You know, <laughs> it's like they've already um, and and or give them very little more. And the other piece of that is that in, in many cases, I think they served maybe a year in a in a, a country club prison in Iceland, um, and then they were out. So, do you follow uh, them at all? Like, have did they serve their mini sentence, and now are they back to their same old tricks, or are they? just completely out of the public eye like any, any no, idea I mean, what I, happened to them i was there and i believe one of them i i was there and i was in i was visiting iceland and i was in a restaurant and i saw one of them come in with his wife for dinner and it was while he was on um he was still serving his time but he had been let out he was in reykjavik he think he had to wear a ankle bracelet he had to be home by eight o'clock each night or something like that but on weekends he was allowed to stay out till 11 or something so he was <laughs> at a restaurant with his wife um and um i i think they have done a lot of pr um to 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 say that that this was um this is all the fault of lehman collapse and we you know we had a beautiful bank and and i think the the line in Iceland is is closer to that these days. They've kind of forgotten the the bigger story. Huh. Yeah. Wow. That's in just so our listeners aren't walking away with so much kind of uh, gloom and doom. Should I say <laughs> where where I mean who's doing it right right now? You know where can you point to and say you know what their system's okay. I, I wish I had better news for you, Brian. I don't. I uh, look. I'm not a. I'm not an expert on every every market in the world. Um, I, I know the markets. I know the Swiss market pretty well now. Um, I know the UK and the US pretty well. Um, I have worries about all of these. The I have worries about the US and the European markets. Um, from a corruption standpoint, or just yeah. from a fiscal standing standpoint. From a from a corruption standpoint. Um, that you know the number of inside trades that that goes uh unprosecuted everywhere is quite quite staggering i think um i was i was here i was in charge of market surveillance and enforcement um and we were sending about 50 serious insider cases a year so about one case a week to the swiss uh public prosecutor and the swiss uh, uh regulator but in both cases they don't it's always the, the, the cases are out there and they'd be easy to do. And, you know, we could so okay, I'll, I'll give you the good news. The good news is that you could clean this up really fast. You know, you could, you could have super clean markets really fast, um, probably six months or a year or two years, you know, it would be easy to do. Uh, you just need to start to do some big cases and have some headlines and things will get clean really fast. Um, but in order to do that, you need resources at the, at the prosecutor level and at the, at the regulator level. Um, and in most cases they don't have the right people and they're not, they're not compensated to really go after things. And so they don't, and there's no public pressure to, cause the, you know, it's like if I break into your house and steal your TV, you're going to, you're going to call the police and, and demand, you know, something be done. But if I break into your pension fund as an inside trader and, you know, I slowly steal $20,000 or $50,000 from you, you will never know that you lost that money. So it's, it's hidden. Um, People often say these are victimless crimes. Like it's it's not it's not victimless. The victims are just distributed, um, and uh, and so unfortunately, there's there's not the public pressure to 
to go after this, but you clean it up easy. The other, the other piece of this is that um, no, no country's market wants to lose market share to other countries. So if, if one place, this is another explanation for why it's a bit corrupt. If one place would really go after um, and really be great at going after inside trading, insider trading, let's say, then people would maybe not want to list their companies there, right? It's like, well, why don't I go to London? Uh, it'll be it'll it'll be it'll be lighter touch there, so I'll I'll list there. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I think that explains that, that there's um, this is kind of a race to the bottom, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, it's it's so complex, and it's uh, I mean, I I never want to be cynical. I always want to remain the optimist, but it's like you said, when there's cheap money and and there's competition and. Uh, these things, unfortunately, sometimes they do happen. And then it seems like the cover-up ends up becoming far worse than the initial problem. Yeah. Yeah. So if if you could give us a little kind of clue to the, the man behind the book. So you started at MIT as an engineer, which I think is interesting in and of itself. How did you go from there to Wall Street? And then why Wall Street to the corrupt right. Icelandic <laughs> bank? <laughs> well, uh yeah, that's that's I I uh, yeah. So I I always wanted to to work in financial markets. I think since I was in third grade or something, I'd be like, "Do you remember when they had the stock prices printed in the newspaper?" Yeah. Um, I used to go and and like read those for some reason. I don't know what I was looking for, but I was like nine years old. I'd be reading this, you know, just be looking at these <laughs> stock stock info in the newspaper, um, and uh, uh, really. Uh, I studied engineering. I really liked it, uh, but then I worked briefly as an engineer. I actually worked for Bose Corporation, uh, making speakers in Massachusetts after graduated. And being an engineer was not that exciting. It was quite quite dreary. Um, and uh, I really I wanted the excitement. You know, I wanted uh, I wanted I wanted the, the the motion of 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 markets and so on. I ended up joining a company in California during the dot com boom years. And they were a spinoff from Oracle. And actually, they were disgruntled ex-Oracle employees who wanted to beat Larry Ellison at his own game. Uh, they wanted to create application software uh, that, would, that, that would basically use Oracle databases. But, um, but they thought that Oracle had missed the boat on, on the, the software that rode on top that helped like big insurance companies, for example, uh, track their policies and track their, track their clients. So I went and that was really that was my first, that was my first lesson in um in financial trickery and fraud because these guys had super aggressive salespeople. Our customers were Enron, WorldCom, Health South, Global Crossing. I mean all the famous uh, accounting scandals of those days were our customers at this company. Um and we were selling basically vaporware. We were selling software that worked a bit but not really. Um, and the, 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 these, uh, especially Enron type companies, uh, were happy to buy from these high pressure sales guys. Um, and on the back, we would kind of ship them some software that didn't really work. Um, and, and then we would on our books, book the full revenue for the deal. And a lot of us who worked in there were quite upset by what we were uncovering in there. So that was kind of the beginning of my interest in, um, in uh, 
like like financial fraud or or how easy it was to sort of trick people um even even within a firm and then i ended up working for about five years for wall street actually um as you mentioned and that was a great job because then i was writing software it was, it was the back office of one of the biggest banks in the world and uh software that we were that we were implementing was great it worked the client was happy um and these were just great years these were what we did for them was really really enjoyable and, and really valuable um but i but i was getting burned out from that and i got almost by fluke i got a a chance to do a similar have a similar job in iceland and i thought okay i'll take a year off from wall street and i'll i'll go to iceland and just you know see what this is like maybe try to learn another language and uh, broaden my horizons a bit and so that 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 was 2004 and i never looked back uh, once i was in iceland the the daily life there was just so much better than than what i had known in boston um even though i was making a lot less money it, it didn't matter it was it was um really nice to be there and so I, I jumped from software i jumped into the into the uh asset management side of uh of one of iceland's big banks and uh, also that was enjoyable i mean we were uh, we were creating um these great uh alternative investment products for the icelandic pension funds and it was i mean at first i was really happy there i thought this was fantastic um but it was only after the after i, I started to see some of the trickery uh, some of the ways that we uh, took money from smaller clients to benefit larger ones and so on that, that I started to get uneasy. Um, but yeah, so that was, that was my journey to Iceland. Uh, <laughs> and now here we are, you know, over 10 years later since this whole collapse, what, uh, what do you got going on now? Obviously great book came out that I hope everybody goes and takes a look at. Um, but what's next for you? What's on the agenda? Well, I've been working uh, alongside writing. I've been working as a consultant. I have my own firm, Katla. I've been advising on investigations here in Switzerland. Uh, and also uh, I've been advising uh, NGOs, especially on the sustainable finance topic. Uh, however, this week I'm in, I am interviewing with uh, a big Swiss bank to, be, uh, to, to uh, work in anti-fraud capacity for them. So uh, let's see. I, I'll either continue as uh, independent or maybe this is a, a good opportunity to get back into, uh, into, into the big bank world. So we'll see. Yeah. And it seems like a natural fit there in Switzerland. You know, it's, it, why is that at least here in the States, it seems that Switzerland in, in these Swiss bank accounts, it's just kind of synonymous with like easy fraud. Yeah. You know, but you know, a lot of the, the bank secrecy is, is gone um, in Switzerland. I don't know if you knew that, but. So that's been cleaned up or it, to well, some it's, extent. It's, it's thanks to the U.S. So you guys could uh, move everything over to South Dakota and Wyoming. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, uh, that was that the U.S. put a lot of pressure through the DOJ on the Swiss banks. Um, they said either you either you tell us all your U.S. Um, U.S. citizen account holders each year, or you lose access to the U.S. dollar clearing market. Um, so that's your choice. And so some of the banks here just folded. Up. There's been a lot of consolidation here. A lot of the I think the oldest one was uh, Vegelin was was closed, um, mm-hmm. and there's there's um, and then after the U.S. did that, then then the other um, uh, surrounding countries, Switzerland, started to get aggressive as well. Germany came for its citizens, France, Italy, and so on. And when you um, say aggressive, do you mean in, in cleaning up their act or going after that market share of American money? 
Uh, no, I mean that Germany, the German government said, okay, yeah, since you're sending the U.S. information on its citizens, we want to know all the Germans who have oh, accounts oh, with Switzerland. Oh, it's an information exchange. This is just this information is just sent out to, to all the governments that want it. Um, gotcha. So that's been a that's been a big shift here. But then, as we saw in the Pandora Papers, I mean, um, a lot of that activity went to uh, Wyoming, South Dakota. Um, but I guess the U.S. now finally is joining the world. It has a corporate registry law. I don't know the details of that, um, but that that gives me some hope. That's another thing that gives me some hope um, because before this, you know, you could create a company in Delaware or Wyoming or, or any of these states, and and nobody can see who owns the company. Um, and that's a that's a horrible for money laundering, right? I mean, yeah here i mean i own my company's katla you can just go now and google katla you can find the company registry in the canton of zurich and you can see that i'm the owner um and that's that's the world standard and that's funnily enough that's the standard that the u.s pushes on everyone hey you got you have to clean up your act you need a public registry but um finally it looks like the u.s is going to do the same which would be really it's really a good step now i don't know if the u.s is going to be retroactive which I kind of doubt it would be nice if everybody had to, um, you know, th then you wouldn't have these uh, oligarchs buying um, apartments in Trump Tower, for example, uh, mm -hmm. but you can't see who owns them because they, they hide behind an LLC in Delaware. Uh, then, yeah. you, then you could just Google the LLC and see who owns it, you know. Um, so that would, be that would be something really good that we could do. <laughs> but it, it just always seems like there's if people want to be hidden or want to find a loophole of sorts, there's always a way, um, whether it's the LLC in Delaware or then creating a trust that owns the LLC, or it just seems like there's always layers that can be added, you know? Yeah. But the, the problem is not like my, I have a nine-year-old niece, you know, she can write me a trust certificate, right? But no mm -hmm. bank is going to take that because they're going to say, what the hell is this? But what the problem is you go to a bank in a financial capital, New York, London, uh, Zurich, and you bring them a trust certificate from uh, Panama or something, and they say, "Oh yeah, sure, Mr. Bibbler, we'll give you an account, uh, you know, for this. Tr we'll give this trust an account." And that's the problem. I mean, that's the dirty secret of offshore finance. Is it never? This is another thing that could be cleaned up virtually tomorrow. Just um, don't let banks take a business from uh, certain jurisdictions, for example, um, and and because the money never leaves. It's not like the money goes to Panama or BVI. Those 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 places don't have really big banking infrastructures. The money always stays in the in the infrastructure is always in the the financial capital. You know, um, the issue is that those banks in, in Iceland this happened a lot. People would incorporate, um, and it's and the other thing people don't understand is not just about taxes. It's about hiding who's behind the thing. It's about hiding mm -hmm. who's in control of the thing. But that could be that could be cleaned up easily. Just say, hey, you, if if you have a, a, you know, if if you want to do business with us, you have to come in as yourself. You can't come in behind a, a shell company from another jurisdiction. We won't take the business. Uh, so that would be that would be an easy change to make. Um, but unfortunately, as we saw in Pandora Papers, the beneficiaries are often the same politicians who would would need to you know pass the legislation to clean that up. Yeah. Um, so that's that's the problem there. But the problem is not that, you know, my niece writes a <laughs> share certificate for me. Uh, yeah. 
you know, uh, yeah. And, and the one other aspect of that, that we've kind of touched on a little bit with interest rates, do you feel that if interest rates internationally started to go up, uh, that lenders would be a little bit more careful, a little more strict with what they're doing? Yes. Uh, yes. And, uh, but, but I think we're in a box now with interest rates because the global debt to GDP is at levels that it's, I think it's never been before in mm -hmm. the history of the, of, of us as humans, you know, the history of the financial system. I want to say it's 350%. Could be off yes. on that, but it's, I know it's higher than uh, it's ever been. It so imagine, imagine if you raise interest rates, even half a percent globally, what would happen? You, you have debt that you can't service. Yeah. Um, and so I think that, I think the central banks are now in a box um, because they can't really raise rates like they should. Because now we yeah. have inflation. We have a big inflation problem. And central banker line is like, oh, well, we know how to handle that. Well, that's easy. We just raise rates like Volcker did. But I don't think that they have that. Um, I don't think it's so easy for them now. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's such an interesting topic. And I, I really thank you, Jared, for coming on here. Is there anything else that you'd like to maybe share with our listeners or uh, anything you wanted to get off your chest? No, I think I got plenty off my chest. I wanted to really thank <laughs> you, Brian, for the, for the chance to talk. And I really enjoyed it. Yep. Yeah, this was fantastic. Very eye-opening. So everyone, thank you again for listening today on the show. We've had Jared Bibler. His new book is called Iceland's Secret, The Untold Story of the World's Biggest Con. Go check it out now wherever books are sold. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next week. Take care. This podcast is intended for the general public and for informational purposes only. The show does not provide any recommendations or investment advice regarding any specific account type, service, strategy, or product, or to otherwise act in any fiduciary or other capacity. Please contact a financial professional for guidance and information that is specific to your situation. Brian Kaderna does not provide tax or legal advice. Please contact your accountant or legal advisor to discuss your situation. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or Kaderna Financial Team, and opinions stated are their own. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not guarantee of future results. References to specific securities, asset classes, and financial markets are for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a solicitation, offer, or recommendation to purchase or sell a security. Brian Kaderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 300 Broadacres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003, phone number 973-244-4420. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Kaderna Financial Team is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. California Insurance License Number 0K04194. Approval Number 2021-129131. Expiration 1023.